welcome. This is a message from Victory Church. We trust you'll be inspired and encouraged by today's message. I want to talk about how we bring the hope that is in Christ into a helpless culture. Um, and the way I want to do it this morning is a little bit different. I, I'm not necessarily going to take the tact of how to share your faith or, or, or how to talk to people about God. I want to take, I suppose, one step back and just address this simple concept this morning uh, about not necessarily how we reach out to the lost and the last and the least, but how we actually see the lost and the last and the least. Uh, because I believe with all of my heart that if we could begin to see the lost like Jesus sees the lost, we would naturally go like Jesus went. If we as a community, as a people of God, as followers of Jesus, would begin to, to value those people who are far away from God like God values them, we won't be able to do anything but share the love and the hope and the truth and the grace that is in Jesus Christ. Because when we see the lost, like Jesus sees the lost, we go like Jesus went. Let me pray and then we'll jump into this. Lord Jesus, we love you. Help. Amen. I always pray really short because I, I want to get through quick because there's, there's a protein shake and some hard-boiled eggs waiting for me in Tony's office. I missed out on breakfast, uh, so this is going to be an expedient uh, sermon. I apologize. When we see the lost, like Jesus sees the lost, we go like Jesus went. I, I talk about the movie Titanic quite often, frankly, because the movie Titanic is one of the greatest movies ever made. And, um, and I've, I've seen it many times. Who's actually seen the movie Titanic before? Who's seen the movie Titanic? Would you just raise your hand in the air? Put your hand up if you've never seen the movie Titanic. If you were, wow, really? I, I, I feel, look, everyone born after 1995, uh, and a few of those people who were raised in households where mum and dad didn't let them watch TV. But that's, that's phenomenal. Um, God has given us the DVD player and Blu-ray so that we can rectify that issue. Can you please help your brethren out and sometime this week take them out to watch Titanic. I love the movie Titanic. Uh, it is an epic. It's a grand story. There are memorable scenes all the way through it. Uh, I can even see right now Leonardo DiCaprio, Jack, just declaring that he's the king of the world. And I can see Kate Winslet, like Rose, uh, talking about how she feels like she's flying. I can see that, that, that poignant moment in the movie where the Titanic is sinking. Sorry to ruin the movie for you, but it goes down. <laughs> And, 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 and the Titanic inverts, remember that part? And it sticks up high and there's a man and he's holding on to railing but can only hold on for so long and he eventually lets go and falls and hits the propeller and goes, thong! <laughs> I love that sound, I love that part of the movie. Deep, deep, deep part of the movie. There's another scene in the movie that, that gets to me every time I watch it and, and many of you may not have paid attention in the past. It's a relatively obscure scene, uh, but it's a powerful and dramatic one indeed. 
There's a part of the movie when after the Titanic sinks, again, sorry to ruin the movie for you, and there's a group of survivors and they find themselves in a lifeboat. And in this lifeboat, there are only a handful of survivors and surrounding this lifeboat is a complete darkness. And, and in the darkness, you can hear those who are drowning splashing around in the Atlantic Ocean. And along with that splashing, you can hear their cries for help. Their pleas for someone to come and bring about a lifeboat. And so uh, these people in this lifeboat hear these cries, and so one brave woman stands up and, and naturally responds and says, well, there's, there's plenty of room in our lifeboat. Let's, let's go out into the darkness and see if we can, we can save some people. Come on, let's grab an oar and go. But what was amazing was the scene that she was met with as the first person who responded to her looked at her, and she was so frozen with fear she couldn't move her lips, let alone her hands, and all she could do was look away. She, she turned to the next person who was a sailor in the boat, and the, the sailor stood up and told her to sit down and to shut up, that if they took the lifeboat into the darkness, the lifeboat would be swamped, and that they would all drown together, that, that she should be quiet and enjoy the fact that she's got a seat in the lifeboat and not try to rock the boat anymore. This brave woman pushes back against the sailor and says, no, it's our men, it's our children, it's our families drowning out in the ocean. We have to do something. We can't do nothing. There is plenty of room for more, which drew the reply from the sailor. If you want to help them, we can arrange that by throwing you into the ocean as well, and you can be with them yourself. This brave woman turns to one more person, someone that she had met on the cruise so far, someone she knew had family out in the darkness, and, and this brave woman pleads with her, would you help me, would you grab an oar, would you help me row this boat into the darkness so that we can help somebody? But this woman could do nothing but close her eyes and bow her head, and the scene ends with her cupping her ears to block out the noise the voices of the drowning. This scene always gets to me. It always stirs me, not only because of its dramatic value, but because of its prophetic implications upon my life. Because we as a people of God now find ourselves in the most glorious and grand lifeboat known to man. In the midst of a drowning humanity, God in his grace, God in his goodness, God in his grand love reached out and grabbed us and lifted us up out of our miry clay and now we are here to enjoy our redemption, to enjoy our restoration, to know the Redeemer. Here we are as a people of God in this beautiful lifeboat. But at the same time, we as a people of God are consistently and continually surrounded by a darkness where the voices cry out for help. The lost and the last and the least searching for love in all the wrong places and always finding that these places that offer so much deliver so little. And in the midst of us as a lifeboat community, there is plenty of room for more. 
I see this scene unfold in my life. I see this scene unfold for us as a community loved by God, saved by Jesus, directed by the Spirit. I see this scene, a lifeboat where we have our safety and our security at the same time surrounded by a darkness. The whole time in our lifeboat, there is plenty of room for more. I see this scene unfold because I, I hear the different kind of characters and their voices that you see in this lifeboat. I have that voice sometimes of that brave woman that desires to reach out and to do whatever I can so then God can do whatever he can to see people who are far away from him brought close to him. I have that voice of that brave soul who would desire to lay down my comfort so that someone else could potentially find the comforter. I have that voice, but at the same time, if I was to be honest with you, I also wrestle and I struggle with those voices that tell me to sit down and to shut up those voices of fear, those voices of trepidation that tell me what would actually happen if we reached out to the lost and the last and the least. What, what would actually happen if we throw these doors wide open? What kind of discomfort would be developed? What kind of problems would ensue, uh, ensue? Who would take my spot in the car park? Who would take my seat that I take each week? Who would ruin this wonderful, harmonious system that we have? You see, I wrestle with these questions. I wrestle with this fear. I wrestle with these forces that would have me sit down and shut up in this lifeboat that there is plenty of room for more. Now, I have those voices of apathy that just say, hey, you know what? I've got my salvation. Why bother about anybody else? Just, just close your eyes and cup your ears and wait for that time that Jesus comes riding in on a white horse the world is broken. The world is bad. God will take care of that later. Right here, right now, right now, all I know is that I've got something that is good, and I'm just going to be grateful with that and just ride along, but not stir the pot too much. You see, what I'm trying to illustrate for you as we launch into this message is that we as a people of God are consistent and continually trapped in the midst of a tension. We as a people of God, saved by His grace, Redeemed and now being restored. Finding ourselves within a lifeboat where there is plenty of room for more. We have this consistent struggle where we know somewhere deep inside that, that we don't exist as a church just to sing songs and to hear talks and to put on programs, but we exist as a church to be a hope to a broken world, to be a light in a dark place, to be salt in a flavorless planet. But there are, come on, are you with me? These voices and these forces that would have us sit down and shut up. These voices of apathy, these voices of fear. My friends, we find ourselves consistently trapped in this tension. In a lifeboat where there is plenty of room for more. Surrounded by a darkness crying out for help but kind of liking the extra space that we got. My friends, we find ourselves in this tension. So what we do as pastors and preachers and propagators of the gospel, 
we try consistently and continually to help people like yourselves, a faith community, to keep your eyes focused on not just what we have in this lifeboat, but on the world outside to which God is calling us to reach out. And we, and we, and we try our best. We, we throw our effort and our energy and all of our experience to try to help us continually remember that it is not for the sake of doing church that we get to do church another week. It is for the sake of the world that God gives us another crack to do another week. That's the reason it says in 2 Peter that, that, that God is not slow in keeping his promise. This is talking about Jesus' second return. He's saying he's not slow in keeping his promise. God hasn't forgotten about us, his bride. No, nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus, the great bridegroom, is aching for his bride. The reason he withholds from coming back and sweeping us up off our feet is because his heart still aches, his heart still breaks for those who have yet to find hope and grace and life in him. Or in other words, this whole deal doesn't happen just so that we can do this deal one more week. This whole deal still happens because God has still got enough love for those people who are not here in this deal yet. And so what we try to do is to remind you as a people all the time. And the way we try to, to, to maintain a focus on the lost and the last and the least is, is, is primarily through, through, three, through three avenues. Number one, we try to do it through pushes. We try to do it through programs, and we try, try to do it through protocols. Or in other words, the way we try to get um, a church like Victory to, to remember that it's got a mission and that its, that its mission is the lost and the last and the least is we sometimes do pushes, where maybe like once a month or once a year, we take a month and we talk about evangelism and we hand out cards and we get you to, to write down names and challenge you to pray for them every day and maybe put on a special service at the end of that month where we bring in an evangelist and then we share the, the gospel. And, and I love these pushes throughout the year. I love evangelism march. It is a beautiful uh, a time for a church to gather around and to celebrate our mission and to engage in it together. But the problems with pushes is that pushes only go for so long. And in my experience, I find that if it's only a push, it, it loses momentum after that month is gone. Because how many know that we throw those cards away at the end of March and we often go back to the same old rhythm, just being a lifeboat where there is plenty of room for more, but kind of liking the extra space. You see, pushes can stir the imagination, but not actually change our heart. So we say, you know, it's not just a push, we're going to try to do it through programs. And we'll have programs in our church, and that'll turn us into an outreaching, evangelizing, lost-focused community. We're going to have Christianity Explained. We're going to have alpha programs. We'll put on dinners that we can invite our friends along to. And I love these programs. I know for our church, we have been so blessed by the alpha ministry for so many years. The only problem with programs is that, in my experience, programs seem to touch the same segment of our community. And by and large, uh, that program is usually carried by the same few people. And so the same few people put on these dinners, the same few people bring along their friends, whereas by and large, the, 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 the most or the, the majority of our community just see it as something that someone else does. Oh, yeah, yeah, we're an outreaching church. We have got Alpha. Have you ever gone to an Alpha? No, 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 but someone else. See, the problem with programs is that a program can give us an opportunity to become an outreaching community, 
but it doesn't have the power to change our heart. See, we try it with pushes, we try to do it with programs, we try to do it with protocols, we say this, you know what? This is how we, as a Victory Church, are going to become an outreaching and focus, uh, a mission-focused community. What we're going to do is we're going to have protocols in church. So we're going to be able to identify uh, newcomers, and we're going to have a, a visitor's lounge in a way that we're going to get people's details, and when someone makes a commitment, this is how we're going to follow up, and we're going to have all these protocols in place. We're going to have all these strategies uh, implemented so that we can make sure that we're not just preaching a gospel, we're, we're making disciples and we're, and we're seeing people outside coming in. And, and I love procedures and I love protocols and I think strategy is really important, but the problem is I found that if we just allow the protocols to do the work, again, the majority of us just hope someone else is doing this lifeboat work, and what happens is we find ourselves again, you know, as one, just watching from a distance, because protocols have the ability to enable us to do the lifeboat work, but doesn't have the power in itself to change our hearts. So we find ourselves in the midst of a tension, that we as a people of God have been called by God, but also set apart for God. And because God doesn't love as an act of his will, God loves as an extension of his character, his heart is not only for you, his heart is for a lost and broken humanity. And so in his grace, in his wisdom, in his splendor, he devised this radical plan that he would bring about his people, the church, as the primary salvation avenue one can walk down here on planet Earth. He set us up in a beautiful lifeboat where there is plenty of room for more. He reminds us of a darkness around us. But we find ourselves consistently wrestling between apathy and fear and a brave spirit as we wrestle with this tension where there is plenty of room for more but we kind of like the extra space. We find ourselves in this tension. As pastors and preachers and propagators of the gospel, we try to stir you as a community through programs and, and protocols and pushes, but they only go so far. And then Jesus shows up. And then Jesus enters our conversation. You see, what I did is I, as I was reading through the gospels, I was kind of just asking this question, all right, God, so here's our situation I know that you've called me to something so much bigger than myself, and I know that you've got so much you want to do through my life to help others out in the darkness, but I wrestle with these, these feelings of apathy and fear, and I know that I'm in a lifeboat where there's plenty of room for more, but I kind of like the extra space, Jesus. What would you say to me? And as I read through the Gospels, I found how time and time again, when Jesus would address the lifeboat community, his people, the redeemed, how he wouldn't revert to another push or to another program or to another protocol, but what Jesus would do consistently and continually was to, by the Spirit, desire to bring about a paradigm shift. Because Jesus understood that if we could begin with seeing the lost like he saw the lost, we would go like Jesus went. If we could allow the Spirit of God to do a work so deep in our hearts to enable us to value those who are far away from God like God values them, the natural extension will be a church 
that understands as a lifeboat with plenty of room for more, but their desire, their, their focus, their goal, their drive would be to fill that space with those people who are in the darkness. Jesus understood that when we begin to see people differently, our hearts start to get stirred and our feet start to move and our hands start to reach out. Because when we see the lost, like Jesus sees the lost, we go like Jesus went. That's what's happening in the book of Luke chapter 15. If you've got your Bibles, would you quickly go with me there to the book of Luke chapter 15. And we're going to have to move quick because there is a countdown clock staring me down in a very intimidating manner. Luke chapter 15, for those who have been around church for a while, you will recognize that Luke chapter 15 is the chapter where the story about the three lost items uh, are found. Uh, the, the lost sheep, uh, the lost coin, and a couple of lost sons. But what a lot of people don't recognize is the context in which Jesus was telling these three stories. You see, Jesus was telling these three stories about lost items because he found himself in this exact same situation. He was addressing the lifeboat community. He was addressing the redeemed people who, caught, who, who found themselves caught in this tension of, of knowing that they had a mission on the earth, but they at the same time had to wrestle with fear and apathy and an arrogance. You see, in the start of Luke chapter 15 and verse one, we get given uh, the scene here, it says, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Or in other words, what's happening here is Jesus, again, is partying with sinners and tax collectors. I love it. When you read through the Gospels, wherever the sinners and the tax collectors were, Jesus was. And wherever Jesus was, the sinners and the tax collectors would kind of find him out. If we're, really going to be ever, if we're ever really going to reflect what Jesus was like, this must be said about us as well. The mark of a true Christian church, which just means Christ is in the midst of it, is not necessarily how well we sing, even though you guys sing well, how well we preach, even though you have great preaching here, how good your coffee is, even though your coffee is great. But it's really marked by the way that we engage with those who are far away from God. And so Jesus is here, and he's hanging out with the sinners and the tax collectors, and into this party come the people, the redeemed, the lifeboat community, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Do not be mistaken, when you read through the Gospels and you read about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, we have been conditioned 2,000 years later, the new covenant people, to boo and hiss, oh, they're the bad guys. No, you've got to understand that 2,000 years ago, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were the people of God. They were the one who had Father Abraham, who had many sons, father, son. You know, that, that was them. They could sing it with gusto because they actually had Father Abraham as their father. They were the people of God who had David as their king. They were the people of God who had Moses as their great leader. They were the ones who had a covenant with God. They were the ones who had 10 commandments and 621 moral laws that brought them into connection with the creator of the universe. They were the ones who were blessed by God to be a blessing. Come on, to the nations, they were the lifeboat community. They were the ones where there was plenty of room for more. So, they in, so in come these 
These Pharisees and the teachers of the law and, and, and these guys were the lifeboat community. And, and what they did is they observed Jesus partying with these sinners and these tax collectors and they began to mutter. Mutter, 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 mutter. I like that word muttering. It's like kind of like, they're, 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 it, like insinuating things about Jesus. Those who are legalistic, those who, are, um, um, who have a, a religiosity mindset um, always seem to mutter. I like it when people mutter. It gives you a, a heads up that you're doing the right thing. Uh, may people long mutter about Victory Church. And, and so, so they start to mutter. And, and, then, and, and Jesus recognizes, wow, they, they, they kind of miss it. They're, they're whinging about the people that my father desires them to reach out to. But what's really interesting is what Jesus does. He doesn't get into a verbal argument with them. He doesn't take it out to the car park. He doesn't get into a theological debate. What he does through these three stories is he tries to bring about a paradigm shift. Because Jesus understood that if the light boat crew could start seeing the lost and the last and the least like he saw them, they would go like he went. If the lifeboat community could truly get what he gets, they wouldn't mutter. They would mingle. And so he tells these three crazy stories about how God sees people differently than we see them. With the hope that if we could begin to see people like he sees people, we would go like Jesus went. So he tells these three crazy stories, and for the sake of time and that countdown clock that is just staring at me with this mean, aggressive look, I'm just going to like, focus in on the first story and, and show to you how radical a story it is and how differently God sees people than the way we sometimes see people, but to challenge you and to again challenge myself to maybe see the lost like Jesus sees the lost, knowing that if we did that, we would go like Jesus went. See, he tells this crazy story in the book of Luke chapter 15. He says, Jesus tells them this story. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep, okay, lifeboat people, and he loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts that sheep on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So what Jesus is doing here is he's addressing not only the, the sinners and the tax collectors, but the, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And he's going, you don't get it. You, you look at them and you turn your nose up. Even worse, some of you don't even look at them at all. But I want you to understand what my father is like. I want you to understand what I'm like. Just imagine you're like a shepherd. And you have like a hundred sheep and you come home from the end of the day of work and, and you do a head count and you find that you've lost one. Don't you leave the 99 to go after that, find that one? And when you find that one, don't you throw it on, its shoulders, on your shoulders and carry it all the way home and then you come home and you have a party? I want you to understand this, that there is more rejoicing in heaven over one of these people coming back to Father God than 99 of us getting together every single week and just doing church. You've got to understand that. See, he's messing with our paradigms here because he's saying some pretty crazy stuff. The first thing he's saying here is how valuable the lost are to him. How valuable the lost are to him. 
You think about it, he says, just imagine you're a shepherd, you had 100 sheep, at the end of the day, you come home, you do a head count, and you find that you've lost one. Don't you leave 99 to go after one? Well, on the surface, my initial reaction would be, no, you don't. If I was a shepherd, I'd be working hard all day. I came home, and my dinner was on the table, and my kitchen rules was just about to start. The last thing I would think about is trying to help out one dumb sheep that got lost. If I did a head count at 97, 98, 90, oh, I've lost one. Oh, well. Having a bit of an economics background, I would understand. I could probably just write that one off on tax. It's a loss. In fact, I would see the opportunity because I lost a dumb sheep. I can claim that one dumb sheep on insurance and actually get a smart sheep in return because it's a dumb sheep. Because you got like, how can you get, how do you get lost? Like you're what, there's 100 of you. You got 99 of your brothers. You're wandering around an open field. How do you get lost? It's not like you're wandering around Kmart. Like it's, so, so here's an opportunity. One dumb lost sheep that's made its bed, deserves to lie in it. Here's my opportunity. But then Jesus says, no. We don't see the lost like you see them. You see them as just another person who's done something dumb and wandered off. No. I see them of great innate value. They're valuable to me. I, I have not overlooked them. I've spotted them. They not, only have, not only have they caught my eye, they are the focus of my vision right now. Our families, our friends, our neighbors, our work colleagues, those people within our world whom God has put there, they are of immeasurable worth to him. You see, we wrestle with this because we live in a world that is built on this economy that says where there is plenty of something, it's not worth much. Where there is scarcity in something, it's worth a lot. That's the reason a glass is only worth a couple of dollars because there's a lot of glass in the world, but a big diamond is worth up to millions of dollars because there are only a few large diamonds in the world. So in our minds, we think to ourselves, we live in a big world, seven billion people, a lot of them don't care about God, you know, like, you know, three billion of them are Asian, they all look the same. How can I, he tell them all apart, like, don't laugh, that was kind of racist as well. And so, so we say to ourselves, hey, there are so many lost people, how could God care about them all individually? It's just such a, a faceless sea of humanity. No, God isn't like that. He does a head count. And he sees every single person in your life who is far away from God, and they are of immeasurable value to him. Your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your cousin, your neighbor, your boss, your employee, everyone who is far away from God is not forgotten by God. They are recognized by God. They have been noticed by God. It's hard for us to get our minds around. I mean, there's so many of them. I was in Canada recently and, and my friend who I was ministering for is in his early 30s and he's got seven children. His wife has been pregnant for the best part of a decade. And I had to ask the question that every man in this room is asking, how do you remember them all? And he got a little bit upset because he goes, no, I remember them all. And he knew all of their names, their middle names, their birth dates, and their birth weights. Because that's what good dads do. We've got a great dad in heaven who sees humanity created in his image each one bearing his mark, each one bearing an eternal soul. And he can't overlook them. He values every single one. Yeah. 
Not only does he value every single one, right now, even though you are measurably loved, it is them who are his priority. Woo! (laughs) Don't like me anymore now, do you? I'll say that again, and this is probably the linchpin of this whole talk. That from this story, we must deduce that even though we, the redeemed, are immeasurably loved, right now, it is the lost who are his priority. Why must we deduce this? Because he says, you come in, you're a shepherd, you do a head count, you find that you've lost one, don't you leave 99 to go after the one? Now on the surface, I'm saying no. I'm thinking to myself, 99% is not a bad result. And why would I want to leave the 99 that did right? I'm a little bit scared to leave 99 sheep to their own devices in my household. They might organize themselves and I come back and there's a sheep revolution going on. I'd be scared. But no, he says no. As soon as the shepherd, mm, the good shepherd, recognizes that there's one out there, all of a sudden his entire attention switches to them. We must deduce that even though you and I are immeasurably loved and valued by God, right now it is the lost who are his priority. Woo! It's hard for us to get our minds around, isn't it? Because we live in a world, sometimes in a Christian world, that tells us all the time, hey, Copernicus was wrong. The world actually does revolve all around you. You're the most important. Let me serve you. Let me do things for you. If you don't like something, give us some feedback and we'll change it. We are conditioned to really think that everything should kind of march and dance around us. But here, Jesus throws a glorious spanner into the midst of our works. And he says, I love you so much, but it's not about you. I love you, but my priority are those who are still outside. It's hard for us to get our minds around, but maybe this will help. Recently, we were in Disneyland. Okay? I have a great life. And, um, and I was in, my, in Disneyland with my wife and my two kids. Josiah is seven. My girl is nine. Caitlin, they're gorgeous. And we're hanging out in Disneyland, the happiest place on earth. Who's been to Disneyland before? Come on. Not, not the happiest place on earth on your first day when it's 42 degrees and you're a rookie. Okay? And you don't know this whole kind of deal. It's actually the most hellish place on earth. And so it's hot, and, and there's all these massive queues and lines everywhere, and I'm kind of getting a little bit stressed out. We're standing in line trying to get onto Space Mountain, and it says a one-hour wait. The kids are running around, and they're like sweating, and they're bumping into things, so I get angry. I say, okay, enough running around. Everyone stands still. Dad's a bit stressed. So my wife, Krista, grabs Caitlin and pulls um, her close to her, and then I grab Josiah and pull him close to me, and we're standing there waiting in line, and then I kind of look at Krista, and she smiles, I look at my daughter, she smiles, and then I look at this woman looking at me. What's your, what's your problem? Having a bad day, woman? And then she looks down at my hand, and, and I thought I was there rubbing my little boy's head. But, but I, was, I was rubbing her little boy's head. <laughs> See, in the confusion and the anger, I had just grabbed an inch, any child and just pulled him in close. And the awkwardness was swallowed up with fear in, a, in an instant because the question dawned upon me, if I'm rubbing this lady's head, um, boy's head, who's rubbing my boy's head? So I started to do what we all do when we lose our children. And don't look at me as if you haven't done it before. We start to panic, don't we? 
we say, hey, be calm, be calm, be calm, but then we start panicking, okay? And so we start like, you know, looking into bins and knocking them over, knocking over turnstiles, pushing people apart. Our heart starts to race. Our mind starts to race. Our imagination, what happens if they're going to be here forever? Will he be raised by a weird Mickey and a Minnie? Have they been stolen by... And so all these things are in your head. So you go crazy. Now in that moment, which one of my children did I love more? Caitlin or Josiah? I love them the same. I will never be able to separate them. But which one in that moment was my priority? My boy. It's not because he doesn't love you, my friends. It's just that you're not lost anymore. And we've all got stuff. We've all got stuff to deal with. I'm not trying to say that, that we're, we're finished projects. In fact, I've got a feeling we're going to be projects for the rest of our days, all right? I'm not saying that God doesn't need to restore you or help you or love you or heal you. I'm saying that, that stuff's going to happen because he gave us his Holy Spirit, the ultimate healer and, and comforter and counselor and friend. It's going to happen. But you're not lost anymore. but there are still some who are. And that's why Father God loves us immeasurably, but right now it's the lost who are his priority. Quickly, we're done because the, the, the you, you notice how the band got up there and they're gonna start playing a minor key to make you feel all emotional? <laughs> I teed it up. <laughs> Two more things and then we're done, all right? Really quickly, not only are the lost valuable to God? He's picked them up in his head count. Not only are they, they right now his priority, but God is fully committed to their whole journey home. Because the story gets really weird because he says this, just imagine you're like a shepherd, you did a head count, found that one was missing. Wouldn't you go out into the darkness to go find him? And when you found them, wouldn't you put that sheep on your shoulders and carry it home? Now, on the surface, I would say no. Remember? Come home, long day of work, dinner on the table, my kitchen rule's just about to start. I'm not going to go out into the darkness to go find one sheep. And if you made me come out into the darkness to find you, when I found you, I wouldn't pick you up and carry you home. I would kick you and ride you home. <laughs> Make me come out on a cold night. But God's not like us. He's saying, not only am I seeing them as valuable, and not only are they my priority, I'm going to stick with this journey for as long as it takes until they come all the way home. I'm going to share during Easter time, but I'm going to come back at them again in April time, and then I'm going to bring them along to church in May time, and then they'll go a little bit quiet during June time, but they'll come start asking questions again in July. I'm going to be committed, come on, to their whole journey home. I'm going to show them the gospel through my actions, but also my words. I'm going to show them in stuff that's intangible, but also give them the gospel in clarity. I'm going to do whatever it takes to be a part of what God is doing in the lives of my family and friends who are far away from God, because God is committed, come on, to their whole journey home. It's what he does. He picks up the sheep and he carries it all the way back. And then the story takes its last weird twist. And he says this, not only are the lost valuable to God, not only are they his priority, not only is God committed to their whole journey home, the lost coming home causes the greatest celebration in all of the heavenlies. <laughs> 
Because he tells his story, he says, okay, so the good shepherd comes back, does a head count, finds that one is missing, goes back into the darkness, finds that sheep, picks up that sheep, brings it all the way home, knocks on his neighbor's doors, and throws a party for that sheep. No! If I came home from a long day of work, dinner on the table, my kitchen rule was just about to start, and I found that you were missing, I had to go out into the darkness, into the cold to come to find you. When I found you, I would kick you, I would ride you all the way home, and when I got home, I would kill you, cook you, and eat you to show all the other sheep what happens if you get lost. But God's not like that. He is so excited about the thought of one person who has an eternal soul coming back into eternal friendship with an eternal God. He throws a party in heaven every single time one comes home. If this kind of celebration happens in heaven, how much more should it happen in this house? Oh, value, value your Value your projects and value your programs and write new songs and teach new sermon series and do all these things, but may all of these be subordinate to our gut excitement at the thought of one person who was far away from God brought back to God. As there is celebration in heaven, let there be celebration in this house. Heaven's a noisy place, do you know that? If you have this picture of heaven and you were growing up and you were told that it's like got clouds and chubby little like baby-faced angels with harps flying around, that's a creepy, creepy image. That's not heaven, that's hell. <laughs> Could you imagine little babies with like grown-up faces? That's terrifying. <laughs> no, heaven is a noisy place because we're not taught a lot about heaven, but what we do know is this, that there are golf courses everywhere. We know it's noisy because it says that in heaven there is a multitude of angels. Now, the only time there's a reference to the numbers of angels is one time in the Revelation it says it's 10,000 times 10,000s, or in other words, it's just countless millions of angels. And all of these angels have the voice like the sound of rushing waters, or in other words, as loud as an ocean is, that's how loud one angel's voice is. And they're not all doing their own thing, they're all singing in unison, holy, holy, holy is the Lamb of God. So it's a loud place. It all gets drowned out. Every time. One of our family and our friends comes home. Every time one of our neighbors say, hey, you know what? There's something about your life that's different than mine. I don't know what it is, but I want to have what you're having. Every single time one of our brothers say, hey, I used to be down for this Jesus stuff and I just feel like I need to explore him. But every single time one lost person comes home, heaven goes on mute in comparison to the noise that is created when one lost person comes home. As this celebration happens in heaven, how much more should it happen, amen, in this house? This is the end of the message. Thank you for taking the time to listen, and God bless.